0: You're listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 27th of December, 2023, on Monocle Radio. And welcome to The Briefing, broadcasting to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I'm Georgina Godwin. Coming up on today's programme, we'll get the latest from Israel and Gaza.
1: Then... I am delighted to announce that the winner of the Booker Prize 2023 is Prophet Song by Paul Lynch. We'll look
0: back at literary highlights from 2023 and we'll look ahead to what 2024 might hold for Donald Trump. We'll have a rustle through the papers and, finally, we pay tribute to a great friend of Monocle.
2: I joked, um, the kids joked with me, I said, oh, look, they said I invented avocado toast and one of the girls said, hey, Dad, you you know, you didn't invent penicillin.
0: (laughs) That's Australian chef Bill Granger, who's died at the age of 54. All that right here on The Briefing with me, Georgina Godwin. Let's begin today's programme in the Middle East. James Rogers is a former correspondent in Gaza and the author of Headlines from the Holy Land, reporting the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. James, many thanks for, for joining us. Can you bring us up to speed on what's been happening in Israel and Gaza over the last few days?
3: Well, not surprisingly, Georgina, um, both sides are saying that uh, they're continuing to see people killed. Um, Israel is now saying it's had 166 soldiers killed. It's a, a colossal number of losses for them. But of course, it is uh, dwarfed by the number of Palestinians killed. Now, authorities in Gaza are now putting that at 21,000, uh, including 241 in the last 24 hours. Um and, you know these descriptions from the world health organization describing gaza as a bloodbath now another official there saying uh, that they estimate that the uh, health system in gaza is functioning at only uh, 20% of what it was 80 days ago 80 days of co- ago of course being just before this war began on october the 7th so uh, very little signs of thing to be optimistic about and despite continued efforts um Uh, to try to uh, put another ceasefire in place. There's no sign that either Israel or Hamas uh, is willing to do that at the moment.
0: We understand there's been renewed violence in the West Bank.
3: Yes, there's been renewed violence in the West Bank. I mean, nothing like on the same scale as there has been in Gaza over the last few weeks, of course. But uh, reports of six people killed in Tulkarim overnight in an Israeli strike. But I think... Probably the significance of what's happening there was referred to by the Palestinian president, Mahmoud Abbas, who's given his first television interview since the war began, uh, given to Egyptian television. And he is warning that the West Bank uh, could explode, uh, it, 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 as he's been quoted. This, obviously, hugely significant, because one of the major concerns, besides the, the humanitarian and uh, tragedy that's unfolding in Gaza, um, and the continued threat to both Israeli and Palestinian lives, um, the big concern, of course, is whether this conflict will spread um, beyond the immediate era, mm. area and of course that would probably happen first um, in the west bank uh, the other occupied palestinian territory and so i think there's a, there's great concern um amongst the uh, the palestinian authority who run that of course gaza is run uh, by hamas and has been for for more than 15 years now um, division of palestinian authority in the two occupied territories but i think big concerns there uh, as indeed, of course, there are about um, you know uh, uh, airstrikes. Uh, Israelis supposedly carried out an air a strike on Syria, and also, of course, those attacks in the Red Sea that are disrupting shipping uh, uh, and causing you know problems on um, uh, um, to the wider world.
0: Yeah, and from Hezbollah in Lebanon too
3: that's right i mean i think this is a big concern and at the moment it's not easy to see how um this uh conflict can be contained even if if hezbollah as far as one can tell over the last few weeks um are not looking to have a wider confrontation with israel at the moment israel one imagines too, um the israeli army and other military forces um very 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 much occupied with what is happening in gaza and of course on the west bank too so they will not necessarily want uh, to seek a widening of the conflict but of course um The fact that the parties don't necessarily want conflicts to widen is not a guarantee that that won't happen. Mm.
0: Has the United Nations resolution had any effect on the ground?
3: It doesn't seem to have done so, so far. I mean, that's no surprise. Israel's relations with the United Nations have often been fraught and probably are at an absolute all-time low at the moment. So after that resolution, which we had on the 22nd of December, calling for um immediate safe and unhindered delivery of humanitarian aid that's of course you know if you can imagine what well, i don't think any of us can really imagine what gaza is like you know if not even the hospitals are functioning when so many people are being killed and wounded every day and there's only a fraction of, of the medical system working um people are of course as well desperately short of food and water people have had to leave their homes the majority of the population of gaza have to, had to leave their homes um many of them you know had to move again even from the places that they they were moved to, and while Israel says to uh, the civilian population they should seek places of safety, it's really, really difficult to work out where uh, that might actually be in the Gaza Strip at the moment. So. There's no sign, of course, despite this United Nations resolution, uh, that, this, uh, that, that there's been a big difference in the situation of moving aid in. And, of course, the Secretary General of the United Nations, Antonio Guterres, said himself that the real problem uh, is the ongoing military action. and There's no sign of that abating, as the, as the Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has made very clear in the last few days.
0: Mm. Now, Bethlehem is usually the centre of Christian celebration at this time of year. Can you tell us how Christmas was marked there?
3: Well, I think it really was hardly marked at all. I think I think the people there. Um, a lot of uh, you know, there's a lot of tourist groups that come all over the world. I've I was in Bethlehem. Um uh, on christmas eve uh, during the second palestinian intifada or uprising against israel it's, t- it's 20 years ago now but they described that then as bethlehem's saddest ever christmas and i'm quite sure that that's something which has been surpassed this year um you can imagine you know tour- christian tourist groups come from all over the world in a normal year this is very very far from being um a normal year and i think you know if reports from there are saying that um the tourist shops, uh, you know, and the tour group, uh, the tourist uh, guides have decided that they will not you know, not least because of the cancellations of people who are worried about travelling to the region because of the security situation. Uh, it seems to have been very, very, very far from a normal Christmas. And, and I, I dare to say probably very much the saddest Christmas that that, uh, that town has ever seen.
0: Uh, and finally, James, how secure is Benjamin Netanyahu's position?
3: Well, it seems that um, the majority of the Israeli population really, to a large extent, you know, point out that what happened on October 7th and subsequently was on his watch, his big political strategy for the country, you know, in his many, many years as prime minister has been to provide security for Israelis, and that failed with colossal loss of life. I think one gets the impression from media reports from their own public opinion that um, Many would like him to go, if not now, in the middle of the war, then certainly afterwards. But um, as far as one can tell, Mr Netanyahu has no, any, no intention of doing any such thing. So at the same time as he's fighting um, a war against Hamas, he, is, he, is, he, is, he seems to be increasingly um, unpopular uh, domestically too.
0: James, thank you very much indeed. That was James Rogers. And now here's Sophie Monaghan-Coombs with the day's other news headlines.
4: Thanks, Georgina. Sweden is one step closer to joining NATO after the Turkish Parliament's Foreign Affairs Committee gave its consent to the Nordic countries' membership yesterday. Now, the accession bid will need to be approved in the Turkish Parliament's General Assembly, but there is no set date for this yet. The government of the Democratic Republic of Congo has banned protests that have erupted in the capital against the outcome of last week's presidential election. Partial preliminary results suggest incumbent president Felix Chisikedi is well ahead in the vote. At least 10 people have died in Australia after severe thunderstorms battered the country's eastern states over the Christmas holidays. Authorities have confirmed that tens of thousands of households are still without power. And U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken will travel to Mexico today in a bid to stem a surge of migrants reaching the U.S. southwestern border. Both countries are facing strong pressure to reach an agreement as the crisis continues to worsen. Those are the day's headlines. Back to you, Georgina.
0: Thanks, Sophie. Well, let's continue now with today's newspapers, and I'm delighted to be joined in the studio by the author and political journalist Terry Stiastany. Happy Christmas, Terry. Welcome back. (laughs) Um, We are going to start off with uh, good news for Ukraine, bad news for Russia. This is uh, the story of uh, a Russian ship being hit in Crimea.
1: Yes, that's right. Um, This story has been picked up by both uh, The Times in London and uh, The Financial Times. um, And and as the Times is reporting, saying the Russian Novochekask warship uh, was they describe as wrecked by a 2.5 million pound UK missile, um, and they are saying that the fact that Ukraine has destroyed a Russian warship in the Black Sea um, marks a significant victory for President Zelensky in the war. Um, they describing the ship, saying it's 112 metres long, um, that it was in uh, port in, in Feodosia in Russian-occupied Crimea, um, and describing this very vivid fireball illuminating the sky and indicating that this ship has been obliterated and also saying that the ship is thought to have been carrying Iranian main made drones, which will presumably also have uh, a bit quite an impact on, on what Russia is able to do. Uh, and significant, of course, that this was
0: off Crimea, which has been occupied by Russia since 2014.
1: Yes, um, that's right. So, you know, this uh, these articles are saying that, you know, this is making, they've made a significant dent, Ukraine has made a significant dent in the Russian Black Sea fleet uh, towards the end of the year. And it's the sort of it's calling it again, the latest sign that Ukraine has shown some momentum, particularly in, in this type of uh, of attack against against the Russian fleet whereas the the Russians are downplaying this and saying that well the ship has just only just slightly been damaged um and not not destroyed as the ukrainians are, are saying
0: mm. uh, let's go to Germany now and the news that uh, the longest serving and most influential of politicians there Wolfgang schwabel has died
1: yes I mean this is as you'd expect um this news has has just been announced uh this morning um he died at the age of 81. Uh, on on Tuesday evening, his family was saying that he uh, fell asleep peacefully, um, and he was, you know, it's really looking at these um, obituaries and and the tributes that have been paid to him across the German newspapers. So I've just got the the Süddeutsche Zeitung here, um, and just you know what a significant figure he really was in German politics, even though he never made it to be chancellor. But um, it's quite astonishing he sat in the Bundestag for more than fifty years. Um, so he was first elected in nineteen seventy. And he was constantly always re elected for his same uh, constituency directly, and he felt that that was uh, very important. Um, you know, notably, he was the interior minister from 1989 to 1991, and so do- during that, he oversaw German unification on a sort of interior ministry level, which was obviously you know, huge. He was a, a Christian Democrat, um, and he survived this uh, assassination attempt in, in 1990, and after. After that you know, it was a really you know people were really really shocked by that um, at the time, and you know he he survived a stabbing. He was in a wheelchair for the rest of his life, but he that didn't let that interrupt. Uh, his political career—you know—he was leading the CDU. He was, a, again, he was a minister. He was a finance minister uh, during um, the sort of debt crisis and stuff. And you know, uh, yeah, interior minister, finance minister again, and then carried on uh, even as um, president of the Bundestag. So you know, just somebody who in German politics was kind of was kind of always there. Yeah, absolutely. Well, speaking of grand old men of politics, Winston Churchill
0: apparently loved a pint
1: of champagne. Yes. Um, so, yes, Winston Churchill loved a pint of champagne. This has been something in Britain you have not been able to have um, because of uh, formerly Britain's membership of the EU. But apparently now you will be able to have this. So, um, But this is an interesting story about, you know, Brexit and what the promises were and what the reality is. Um, yeah, Winston Churchill used to apparently say a pint of champagne was enough for two for lunch and one for dinner. Not necessarily. I don't know if that was on the same day. Quite probably. Um, but you can't buy a pint of champagne. But... Britain had a consultation saying, should we go back to allowing people to sell things in pounds and ounces instead of kilos? For instance, should we change the measurements back again? Um, nearly 99% of people who expressed an opinion of this said, no, let's just stick <laughs> with what we've got now. Um, but the government in a sort of bid to make people a bit happier about this or the 1% of people who... who uh, did want this uh, and bothered to respond to the consultation said you will now be allowed to buy wine in 200 millilitres, 500 millilitres and 568 millimetres which is roughly speaking a pint because apparently you can't now. Now you can only buy a half bottle or a full bottle. So one of these big uh, Brexit opportunities is apparently the chance to buy a pint of wine. But the trouble is as the Guardian reports here, um, getting people to make a pint sized bottle, particularly of champagne for presumably a very small market in Britain for different size wine bottles is going to be a lot easier said than done. Um, and there's a great line here. Uh, so one English winemaker told The Guardian, no one is going to make a pint size bottle, said one English winemaker, who asked not to be named because the debate about imperial measures was so toxic. In order to make a pint size bottle, you're going to have to invest a huge amount of money. It's a silly measure. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Uh, and there's a great line too from uh, Sarah Olney, who's the Liberal Democrat MP for Richmond Park and the party's Treasury spokesperson. She says is this really the best this Conservative government can offer? Instead of fixing the crisis in our NHS, cleaning up our rivers and tackling crime the government's been spending its time developing plans to introduce a new bottle of wine size. You couldn't make it up. (laughs) Absolutely. Terry Stiastini, very many thanks for coming on. This is The Briefing on Monocle Radio. back with The Briefing on Monocle Radio. As the year reaches its end, it still looks likely that next November will see a rematch in the United States between the two old war horses of American politics. President Joe Biden and his predecessor, Donald Trump, show every sign of dominating the political year that lies ahead, culminating with America's presidential election on Tuesday, November the 5th. As former President Trump's poll numbers have continued to climb, he is sounding increasingly confident that the voters will return him to the Oval Office. But as Washington correspondent Simon Marks reports, his critics also accuse him of sounding increasingly extreme.
5: Donald Trump marked Christmas with a message that, to begin with, sounded like it was going to be pretty traditional.
6: Melania and I would like to wish everyone a happy, joyous, and wonderful Christmas
5: season. Christians everywhere. But as that 90-second video reached its conclusion, it became clear that thoughts of 2024's American presidential election were not far from his mind on Christmas Eve of 2023. We ask God to
6: guide us, give us strength, and watch over us in this pivotal year ahead. With his help, by this time next year... We will be well on our way to making America safer, stronger, greater and more prosperous than ever before.
5: End of year opinion polls certainly indicate that Trump can close out the year increasingly confident of his possible return to the White House. And that is remarkable, given that he's weathered 12 months that have seen him make history for all the wrong reasons. He remains the first sitting or former U.S. president ever to face criminal indictment. More than 90 separate charges now in four separate jurisdictions, many of them relating to his efforts to subvert the outcome of the 2020 election. But on the campaign trail over the last month, the opinion polls appear to have set him free. The higher his numbers go in the race for the Republican presidential nomination, and the more polls indicate that he is on track narrowly to beat Joe Biden, the more he has unleashed himself. We pledge to you
6: that we will root out the communists. Marxists, fascists and the radical left thugs that live like vermin within the confines of our country that lie and steal and cheat on elections and will do anything possible to
5: destroy America. Critics seized on that reference in early December to his opponents as vermin, accusing Trump of echoing Adolf Hitler's Nazi rhetoric. One week later, Trump upped the ante during a rally in New Hampshire. We got a lot of work to do. They're poisoning the blood of our country. That's what they've done. That was the first time in a passing reference that he accused immigrants of poisoning the blood of America. It caused uproar. 24 hours later in Nevada, Trump repeated it and this time went further in detailing his plans for immigrants, both legal and undocumented, if he returns to power.
6: This is an invasion. This is like a military invasion. When I'm reelected, we will begin, and we have no choice the largest deportation operation in American
5: history. That is just one part of plans for governance that Trump and his backers are now openly discussing. A group of advisors has revealed plans immediately to fire tens of thousands of civil servants, replacing them only with dyed-in-the-wool Trump loyalists, to appoint only proven supporters of Trump's far-right policies to his cabinet, and to strip the Department of Justice of its traditional independence so that Trump can target his opponents with criminal charges. None of this is concealed. It is all openly discussed by advisors like Kash Patel, the former chief of staff at the Pentagon during Trump's first presidency. The one thing we learned in the Trump administration the first go-round is we got to put in all America patriots top to bottom. And we got them for law enforcement, we got them for intel collection, we got them for uh, offensive operations, we got them for DOD, CIA, everywhere. We will go out and find the conspirators we're putting you all on notice. Other veterans of Trump's first term worry that if he's returned to office, an American dictatorship is possible. Mark Esper was defense secretary from 2019 until he was fired in 2020 after publicly criticizing Trump's leadership.
6: You know, eventually it culminated in June of 2020 when he wanted to deploy active duty troops on the street of Washington, D.C. and, and suggested actually that we we shoot Americans in the street. So that's kind of more what you see this very
5: hyper aggressive behavior. He's spoke there on MSNBC. When Trump appeared at a televised town hall meeting in Iowa in early December, he joked that he would only be a dictator on day one of his second term. But his critics remain deeply concerned and one group of moderate Republicans has released a TV advertisement urging the country to heed the risks that lie ahead.
6: This isn't hyperbole. A vote
7: for Donald Trump Uh, May mean the last election that you ever
6: get to vote in.
1: This is an exaggeration.
6: He's a threat to democracy.
1: This is Donald J. Trump. He caused an insurrection at the Capitol. And sorry to ruin your Christmas, but he's running again. This guy is openly running as a wannabe dictator. The alarm is going off. Everyone needs to wake up. We have a choice between protecting our democracy or letting Trump
5: destroy it. The man set to be the Republican standard-bearer in 2024 is unbowed. Last Friday, he appeared on the Hugh Hewitt program on the right-leaning Salem News Channel. Your critics keep saying, oh, he wants to be Hitler.
6: He's talking about poisoning our blood. He's trying to be a Nazi. How do you respond to these people? First of all, I know nothing about Hitler. I'm not a student of Hitler. Uh, I never read his works. They say that he said something about blood. He didn't say it the way I said it either, by the way. It's a very different kind
5: of a statement. As the new year begins, the country will immediately focus on the caucuses and primaries that could see Trump lay claim to the Republican nomination within the next 12 to 15 weeks. For Monocle Radio, I'm Simon Marks in Washington.
0: Many thanks there to Simon. You're listening to The Briefing on Monocle Radio. it's been a busy time in the world of literature and Susanna Butter, who's a deputy editor of Features at the Times, joins me now to look back at some of the highlights from the world of books in 2023. Susanna, many thanks for joining me. Of course, the Booker Prize is the big one, the biggest uh, prize in the English-speaking language, won this year uh, by Prophet Song by Paul Lynch. What's your take on that?
7: It's a bit bit mixed, really. (laughs) I I kind of like what Prophet Song was trying to do it's it's a kind of dystopian novel set in an island that paul lynch imagines that's kind of descending into tyranny um and there's a woman who's a microbiologist and her husband is taken away well some people visit the house and then he's taken away she doesn't know where he's gone she's trying to look after their four kids and her father um but it's a kind of it's a set up we've seen before in, in Katniss other dystopian books um, and she kind of goes and does dystopian kind of Cormac McCarthy the road type island but um, unfortunately I don't think Paul, Paul Lynch is as good as Cormac McCarthy um, and it, it's a bit overwritten mm. um, so I think Paul Lynch is kind of tra- speaking to the refu- refugee crisis all around the world and um, horrible regimes um, but I mean you know he, he just uses many words where one will do and kind of you know it's a spearing rather than breathing and I, I found that a bit distracting but I found the short list and the long list were were brilliant I mean the there was a kind of continuing trend of lots of Irish writers on it and um, I think the beasting by Paul Murray should have won which is this kind of very long family saga um but I mean it generated a lot of interest mm. um as of prophet song went up so It's not entirely a bad thing. Well, I mean, it's interesting,
0: isn't it? Because these judges, these prizes that are judged come down to consensus, don't they? So although perhaps many of the judges did feel like you that Beasting should have won, it had to come down to the one book that everybody agreed on. And I guess that was Prophet Song. Um, There were, of course, lots of other Irish books uh, making uh, the the, uh, bestseller list too this year.
7: Yes, and um, Soldier Sailor, Sailor by Claire Kilroy was one of my favourite books of the year. It's um, a book about motherhood, um, but it's kind of, it's. I don't know when I heard that, that slightly put me off because I feel like I've read a lot of books about motherhood recently, but it's very funny and human and it's got a bit of grit and originality to it um and Anne enright had another novel out called the wren the wren that was fantastic um i mean yeah there were loads megan nolan had a new book um and there's been kind of discussion as to why this has happened and i mean money is obviously part of it i think arts council Ireland do fund writing a lot there's kind of long culture of writing but also it's kind of there's been a lot of change going on in ireland over the last about 50 years um and i, I, I just think that creates a, a quite rich culture, which maybe feels a bit lacking in in English, new English writing. I'm, I'm not sure. Mm. Maybe next year will prove well. wrong.
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, prizes are a good way of kind of taking the literary temperature, if you like. Uh, Barbara Konsolver, uh won the Women's Prize with Demon Copperhead. That was a big moment
7: too. Yes, it was fantastic. Um, I think Barbara Kingsolver won the Women's Prize twice. Um, and yeah, she's just one of our best storytellers, I think. Um, Demon Copperhead's her retelling of David Copperfield. Um, and it's got that kind of Dickensian, combining storytelling with with saying something about where we are now. It's a bit of a critique of I mean, it's set in um, in the mountains in Virginia in the 90s, and um, tells the story of kind of a boy who's been failed by society um, in a, in a life kind of marked by poverty and addiction. Um, and But it's it's a brilliant read. She's kind of having fun with it and draws you into her world and it's totally absorbing and fantastic. Mm.
0: And of course, there were a few uh, notable deaths this year, A.S. Byatt and uh, Martin Amos and Benjamin Zephaniah.
7: Yes. Um, you know, and and I think people have been reading their work an, anew and um, kind of remembering them and, and what they represented and then... I mean, next year there's a film of Martin Amos's story, The Zone of Interest, out, um, which is fantastic. It was a it's a fantastic little story, and um, it's an incredible film. So I, that's a very fitting tribute.
0: Mm. Uh, celebrity memoirs. There seem to have been an absolute glut of them. <laughs> Spare, of course, uh, the one by Prince Harry. Britney Spears has one out. Barbara Streisand, Paris Hilton. I mean, yeah, no end to these. Mostly not written by the uh, the 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 person that says they wrote it. Anyway,
7: (laughs) no, it's been a good year for (laughs) ghostwriters. Um no, it's a, I mean spare particularly written by um the ghostwriter who wrote Andrea Agassiz's book. Um the fact that it came out in January and people are still talking about it. And I mean whatever you think of Prince Harry and the monarchy, it is full of these incredible details, like him kind of stealing mushroom magic mushrooms at Courtney Cox's house and his take on bargain shopping. It's it's the little detail that I think made it. Um and the rest, I mean Barbara Streisand's full of fantastic stories. Um and there's still in the like Arnold Schwarzenegger and Matthew Perry's books. Have, I mean Matthew Perry for obvious reasons, they're still in the bestseller mm. lists. Um yeah, it's kind of even more vivid than fiction. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Uh, and finally, the Nobel Prize for Literature went to the Norwegian writer Jan Fosse, uh, which was, uh, I think, expected in in some quarters. For me, it was a uh, very serendipitous because I was interviewing Karl Ove Nausgaard uh, for the Cheltenham Literary Festival. Now he is famously quite sort of taciturn in interviews, but it turns out that Jan Fosse was his uh, was his tutor at university, so at least we could talk about that and not all eight hundred pages of The Wolves of Eternity. His new book.
7: <laughs> what a stroke of luck! <laughs>
0: um, but but did you agree with the with the Jan Fossé uh, decision by the Nobel Committee?
7: Yeah, I hadn't read any of his work before, but I, I had a little look at some of his short stories um in scenes from a childhood, um, and there is a you can tell the Carlover link, um, and I think they're brilliant. As kind of you know, they talk about youth and old age, and he's got a great tenor phrase um um and yeah they're, they're quite powerful and make you think about the family and and that kind of call over thing about the way you remember things and how you piece it all together and what's reliable and what's not I th- I think well deserved yeah mm, absolutely
0: Carl Over tells a wonderful story where he gives a poem to Fosse who starts by going mm, perhaps this line should go and uh, yeah and this one and, and at the end he's left with one word <laughs> <in the poem. laughs> Susanna thank you very much indeed that was Susanna Butter and this is The Briefing on Monocle Radio <laughs> Tributes from around the world have been pouring in for the Australian chef, Bill Granger, who's died at the age of 54. His family announced that he passed away on the 25th of December, saying a dedicated husband and father, Bill died peacefully in hospital with his wife, Natalie Elliott, and three daughters, Edie, Inez and Bunny, at his bedside in their adopted home of London. Granger was born in Melbourne and became a global restaurateur and food writer, having taught himself to cook. He's remembered as the person primarily responsible for the global popularity of avocado on toast and pioneering a distinctive style of Australian brunch through his global restaurants, Bills and Granger & Co. Granger dropped out of art school in 1993 and moved to Sydney, where he opened his first restaurant, Bills, in Darlinghurst. In 1999, he and his wife launched their business globally, which eventually encompassed 19 restaurants in Australia, the UK, Japan and Korea. Granger wrote 14 cookbooks, including Australian Food and Feed Me Now, and made five television series. In January, he was awarded the Medal of the Order of Australia. In 2020, I went to his home in London where he cooked me scrambled eggs with truffle and we discussed his status as the inventor of avocado toast. Yes, it's always, I mean, food,
2: I mean, it's not rocket science. It's, I joked, um, the kids joked with me, I said, oh, look, they said I invented avocado toast and one of the girls said, hey, Dad, you, you know, you didn't invent penicillin. <laughs> it's okay, yeah, fair enough. <laughs> So I think it is food, it is scrambled eggs. And all it is is about having a bit of fun. And for me, food is about making customers happy. I'm not the kind of cook, and there's nothing wrong with it, who sees their own personal expression. I don't do that. I do food I know my customers will like. Mm. And I think of every customer because I think of my family or my friends or different sorts of people that I know, the staff members, their family, and try to make something that appeals to everyone. I'm not trying to exclude anyone, you know, whether it's, with a wildly um you know exotic ingredient or having to get people to ask what everything is yeah. um which is a lot easier now with google but you know trying not to intimidate people because i'm you know a kid from the suburbs of melbourne and i remember going into those fancy restaurants or anywhere and i don't like i think that old idea of exclusivity feels kind of dated yeah. um i just don't know if we need to make people feel bad because they don't have The knowledge of food or they're not smart enough or they're not dressed properly or they don't feel i mean that feeling out of place i think is there's no place for that in hospitality and i don't or for the hospitality i do and i think that sort of trying to make things exclusive and yeah it's a really odd odd thing in the business of hospitality it still happens but i think you know it's just food people like the same things Think tastes don't change that much i think people's palates are more adventurous in the morning now um in the early days you know, I couldn't have done kimchi fried rice for breakfast, whereas now people love it. But, you know, the basic idea of comfort food is pretty much the same worldwide. You know, whether it's, I love Japanese comfort food, whether it's in a or, um, you know, katsudon or um, ramen or any of those things. And in Hawaii, you know, the kimchi fried rice is a classic dish, poke, all of those things. And I'm always interested in comfort food because it is that idea of making people comfortable and food they can eat every day.
0: And I must say that the recipes look really easy to follow and just things that you really want to eat. Bill, finally, I just need
2: to ask you, what's next? What's next? Well, with lockdown, we're just working on... It's quite interesting, the whole lockdown. I think it's made me appreciate... I think all of us can be guilty of on the run and the cycle of having, you know, work and families and life and constantly running. And actually, I think for me, it's just enjoying what we have and doing a better job it's a great moment to as i said before it's an edited business but that means it's a type of creativity and i started in 92 after the time of a huge recession so part of me gets kind of excited by not knowing what's going to happen and what we're going to do and what i might have to do that you know i might have to close all the restaurants and open up a little back alley somewhere in an old restaurant You know, part of me, even during lockdown, at the lowest moments, kind of excited by that. So I think now I don't know, which is kind of a great thing, not knowing. That it's a bit more like I was when I was 22, that I didn't know. And I just did something from instinct and because it felt right and didn't worry too much about it. So hopefully now my kids are older, I can start to go on that big um, adventure again.
0: That was Bill Granger, who's died at the age of 54. You can hear the full version of that episode of Meet the Writers with Bill in our archive on our website or wherever you get your podcasts. Bill was a staunch supporter and a good friend of Monocle, and we all send our deepest condolences to Natalie and the girls. And that's all for this edition of The Briefing. It was produced by Sophie Monaghan-Coombs, and our studio manager was Christy O'Grady. The Briefing is back tomorrow at the same time. I'm Georgina Godwin. Goodbye and thanks for listening.